Okay, I'm going to talk about anthropology, childhood and obesity and um, start off by saying there are a number of anthropological approaches that I accept the term obesity and the term obesity really starts off from a medical perspective that, that it is some kind of pathology or pro-pathology, so we accept that. If we talk about fatness, then we can actually talk about fatness in good ways and less good ways and so on, so it's an ambiguity. There are people in anthropology who do critical fat studies, for example, who um, um, study the people who reject the obesity message. And this is important to know about because, uh, because there's, a, there's a whole set of other perceptions around, around obesity beyond the medical. And we can't just discount people uh, because you think their logic doesn't go with your logic. People do things for good reasons, even if they seem counterintuitive. So that's a, stand, a starting point for, for an anthropologist. <coughs> I'd call myself a biocultural anthropologist, and just by way of introduction I'd say, I'm interested in biological outcomes of social and cultural processes, and their evolutionary underpinnings, when we can have them. In nutritional anthropology, which is what I think I am, its focus is on nutritional health and well-being, and at the extremes, obesity and undernutrition. Both of these things are, 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 uh, are, are key things. <clears throat> so with that in mind, I want to focus this talk on something a little bit new. I've speculated in the last two weeks and thinking about how can I say something that nobody will have seen yet. Um, and so I thought about evolution and obesity, and you know, this issue is done to death. Evolutionary underpinnings of obesity, the idea of thrifty genotypes, show some differential susceptibility, but as we heard from Frederick Carper today, not much. It's actually very little that we can explain in terms of um, if we were to think in microevolutionary terms. Although a lot has been written speculating about this, very little can actually be pinned down. So. Rather than thinking about that, can we think about evolutionary ecology of present-day obesity production? And evolutionary ecology is about um, <clears throat> the day-to-day -day transactions that might have um, an evolutionary basis um, or an evolutionary outcome. So I'm going to focus on a number of things. The life course. Things change across the life course. And as we know, uh, the life course is fundamentally important in respect of um, uh, metabolic imprinting, um, epigenetics, um, in terms of um, uh, early risk, catch-up growth, subsequent health risk, and so on. In terms of fertility, because this is part of the substrate of evolution, differential fertility rates. In terms of resources that can support individuals, and in terms of, of status, which is, from an evolutionary perspective, the accruing of fitness um, across, um, across the lifespan. That is, if you are of higher status, then you are better positioned to accrue resources than if you're of lower status. And our life is embattled with status. Every one of us, wherever we are, even in this room, with the talks we're giving, we're constantly competing for status. Usually, at this level, very politely. But there are some talks where people are not polite at all. So, the kinds of Evolutionary ecology, think about life course trajectory, birth order, total fertility rates, grandparenting. doesn't usually come into the evolution discourse apart from the grandparenting hypothesis that um, <clears throat> one of the explanations for increased longevity in evolutionary time is that grandparents confer 
um, survival advantages onto grandchildren. So where does this fit into obesity? Wait and see. Social hierarchy, forms of capital and capital formation. Then we talk about socioeconomic status, but that's a hugely inadequate way of thinking about inequalities. That in fact, there are other ways of thinking about that. And at some stage, I'm going to roll out one of my heroes, which is Pierre Bourdieu, in relation to, in relation to obesity. <clears throat> so what is childhood? Nobody has asked this question yet this afternoon. So let's take a look at it. First of all, it's culturally constructed. If you go back far enough, or you go to the developing world, childhood isn't really a category for a lot of societies. We've constructed it. It's a very discreet and natural category for us in the West, but we've been through 200 years of modernization where we see that education is important, making sure your children are fine is important, that there's social status accrued by looking after your children and so on. But biologically, it's the period between infancy and juvenility. Infancy is breastfeeding. Juvenility is when a young child prefers to socialize with other children the same age rather than with their parents. It's this strange period when children are leaving the breast but are not independent enough just to play with other children. You know, when children are about six years old, you can send them downstairs to put the kettle on for a cup of tea in the morning. That's a huge behavioral shift because it gives, your parent, gives, gives you as parents an extra 15 minutes in bed. That is a huge advantage, but it's a behavioral, it's a behavioral shift when they can start, when they can start doing things. <clears throat> it's a part of extended life history that's been central to human evolutionary success. So extending that period of growth is unique to humans relative to all other mammalian species and primate species. It's also for learning much of what must be learned to function effectively in society. This is disputed because in some societies you don't need to know a lot. In societies like ours, we do need to know a lot. That's why there are people in this room who in a society in Papua New Guinea would be having children, but many of you are still in education, still learning at different levels and at advanced levels. So we've extended this period of learning and carry on extending it, carry on extending it. So in terms of thinking about it in the present day, <clears throat> what are the proxies one can use? And I've fallen upon a couple of, 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 of proxies um, that one think about in terms of, um, <clears throat> in term, in, in terms of evolutionary process, evolutionary ecology processes, biomedical healthcare, obesity as a disease and education as the process through which distinction starts to happen, discrimination according to status can happen. So those two things, so keep those. This is colour-coded throughout, by the way. So if you just stay with those two colours, you'll know where I am in the talk, okay? So the blue represent health. <coughs> Excess body fatness <coughs> is associated with implications for health, present and future. It's also associated with stigma, and life chances. That is social hierarchy. What is stigma if not about social hierarchy? It's about putting people in their place. It's about discriminating your group from somebody else's group. It's and can be very cruel in childhood until children know how to be very subtle about discriminating. And as adults, we can be hugely subtle in how we discriminate. With one word, we can destroy somebody because we know the codes that go with, with, uh, that go with, with discrimination. 
Of course, health and life and uh, health is associated with reproductive success. So, life course, life history, and fertility can be seen as one axis, and we can see it working its way through the usual kinds of epidemiological, demographic kinds of data that we have. On the second level, we can look at education and social positioning. But of course, while I separate this in this talk, they are interrelated. They are not separate things. Both of these things are talking to each other across life. This is, this is how we live our life. When we look at the life history and life course uh, trajectories, the most important things in respect of obesity are things like pregnancy and growth trajectories. I'm not going to talk about pregnancy because that will get us into developmental programming and so on, but I'm going to talk briefly about, about growth trajectories. There are many different ways in which children can grow. We have normative, centile ways of thinking about how children grow. But actually, you can start small, get bigger. You can start big, grow smaller. You can respond seasonally to um, environmental stresses in developing countries. And all of these things have consequences. So human life history shows the flexibility in human growth and development. At the one extreme, pre-modern societies grew slowly to a, to a, uh, to a lower body size, for example, South Asians in India. Um, <clears throat> modern societies grow faster to a larger body size. The growth curve is to some extent truncated. As you could look in Papua New Guinea and people would finish their growth um, traditionally, by the age of 22 years, in Western society, they finish by the age of 18 years, for example. So there's some truncation. There is flexibility. That is adaptive, except when we look at modern-day societies. When we think about metabolic imprinting, and this is a two-charge, Ong et al. from Alspach, and uh, Marie-Francoise Roland Cacherat from France, where she shows uh, adiposity rebound. Many people will be familiar with this that those who have early adiposity rebound in, in, uh, in, in childhood are more likely to develop a much higher body mass index. And if we look at these squares, children that have experienced catch-up growth in the Alspach study are more likely to have a higher body mass index by the age of two years and certainly by the age of five years. So if there were not this plentiful exposure to food, these things would be more adaptive. But in the presence of plentiful food supplies, these responses, which are meant to deal with seasonal stresses, become, uh, become problematic. Okay, by birth order, if we look at the um, demographic data and think about obesity and family size, which is, you know, quite an old literature, the first thing that we can see is small families are more likely to have obese children that we look at, uh, regardless of social class, that if we look at uh, uh, this uh, study from the Netherlands in the 1970s, there is something like a twofold difference in uh, obesity risk among those children um, who are uh, single children compared to those who have families of five more. Well, you can say, well, that time there was poverty and there were many issues with being able to feed big families and so on. Well, absolutely. But then let's turn to Portugal. Um, in the 2000s. And then what do we see? We look at number of siblings and birth order, and the number one um, represents um, the, the, the baseline against which risk is assessed. One sibling is, has um, an odd ratio of one, but it becomes half as much or less 
when there are four or more siblings. So larger families, less obesity. Okay. Um, it suggests that the family size has something to do with this. Apart from the resources issue, um, we can think in terms of evolutionary processes that birth order is about investment and that earliest born children are being invested in more heavily than later born children. If we look at the Chinese overweight and the one-child policy, when we look down towards the bottom, um, a one-child policy set at one, the obesity rates in parts of China where girls are exempt from the one-child policy, the obesity rates overall are lower. If you look at two-child policy, it stays about the same. It's very weak association. There are much stronger associations, particularly with respect to urban residents and having overweight parents. But there is something in the data. If we look at the United States, I'll stop banging this drum in a second, I promise you. Uh, if we look at the United States, family structure and childhood obesity uh, from the early childhood lo longitudinal study, a kindergarten cohort, we can again see that those children from single families um, are more obese than children who've got three or more brothers and sisters at kindergarten, in the third grade, in the fifth grade. This differential, ex differential um, uh, investment in, uh, in children, according to family size, persists. I'll take this to its logical conclusion very shortly. Before that, I'll take a little digression through grandparenting. I mentioned that the grandparenting hypothesis suggests that grandparents can invest in their grandchildren. It frees up mothers to have more children in an evolutionary sense and therefore um, uh, favours uh, uh, favors, uh, reproduction, evolutionary success and so on. In prehistory, going back thousands and thousands of years. What happens when we look at present-day society? Do these mechanisms still persist? I would argue yes. That when you look at um, child care that's given by grandparents, full-time or part-time, then um, the risk of obesity among their grandchildren is higher than if they have other kinds of um, uh, uh, care other than informal care. So grandparenting is associated with, uh, with obesity, but I'd argue again, for good evolutionary reasons. This is not illogical. We can condemn the grandparents, we can condemn parents that have one child, but there is a logic to it. And we might be missing this logic if we're just thinking about blaming people because the risk factors are high for, 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 for whatever reason. Uh, there are social reasons. And I want to move on to a few diagrams. I'm going to use what I call Dunbar plots. Robin Dunbar um, is, uh, started off in philosophy, went into psychology, went into anthropology, now he's back in philosophy. He's back uh, in, in psychology here in Oxford. Um, he invented the Dunbar number. He's also notorious for what I call the Dunbar plot, which is that. Okay, you take three points, run a regression through it and say, I've found an association, but he's built a career out of this. So I'm going to unashamedly follow this, um, and my reason is because my units of analysis are not individual people, they are European nation-states. And the only way that I could increase my sample size would be if Scotland decided it wanted independence, 
Um, if Catalonia wanted to have independence from Spain, if Europe disintegrated, be, you know, then there would be a much bigger sample size. But in this naturalistic study, it's simply not possible. So the unit of analysis is the nation state. Now, when we look at this chart, we can see that um, the uh, obesity rates in countries like Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain are very high compared to um, Latvia, Lithuania, Norway, the Scandinavian countries, and so on. And you try and wonder what's going on. Well, I'm going to offer some other thing that we might add to this uh, this set of uh, set of uh, uh, set of issues. This looks at childhood obesity rates by total fertility rates. It's taking the data from Weinhofen in the previous slide and relating that to total fertility rates at the bottom. Now, see, the total fertility rates in countries like Spain and Portugal and Italy are among the lowest in Europe. Um, good Catholic countries. For some reason, they're doing something that the Pope doesn't like, but um, they have extraordinarily low, low, low total fertility rates. So, first of all, we find a negative relationship between obesity rates and total fertility rates. Again, coming back to the issue of parental, uh, parental investment. Um, small family size persists as a factor for um, obesity, moving into seven-year-olds from the same data set moving to eight-year-olds from the same data set and to nine-year-olds in the same data set. I should add, these relationships fall apart for adults. There is abs even you might dispute that this is anything at all, but if you take, if you take adults, it's crazy. It goes all over the place. Uh, this would only matter if there is plentiful, cheap food supply. And again, I regressed the Big Mac Index, which is an index of, uh, of, uh, <coughs> of, uh, uh, of general food costs across different nations, which is produced by The Economist. The Economist is very happy to share this data with us um, in, in the anthropology department um, that shows when you relate the total fertility rates to the Big Mac Index, the countries that have the higher total fertility rates also have the more expensive, uh, more expensive food relatively. When we put all of this into a little ordinary least squared, least squared regression, um, according to overweight at seven years, we find that the um, total fertility rate relationship with obesity is strongly negative. The relationship between food prices and obesity is slightly positive. Both in the pop-out are slightly, slightly significant. So I'm not arguing that this is real and hard data, I'm arguing that this is suggestive of something that we should think about. As societies have modernized, so fertility rates have come down. As fertility rates have come down, traditional patterns of parental investment continue. So you have logic, according to parental investment, continuing despite the numbers of children being very small in the context of plentiful food supplies. I'd argue that maybe this could extend to modernizing nations. Could we have a look at South Africa, where the total fertility rates are coming down to the levels, uh, to the levels in Europe, where you have the same cheap food supplies emerging? And, uh, and uh, you know, that's somewhere that, uh, that, that perhaps we should, we, should, we should go and look. So parental and grandparental investment subverted. Is that an element? Of course, there are many other things going on. Everything else we know about obesity, but parental investment seems to be something I suggest sits somewhere in the background. The effect may be, may be stronger than we've demonstrated in those pictures because total fertility rates across those countries, across Europe, are remarkably low. 
between 1.2 and 2.1, very small. So the variation's low. And the ways in which we can invest in children are very cheap, that is in terms of food. Okay, moving to the second part very, very quickly. We're going to talk about social positioning and talk about socioeconomic status and obesity. Sobal, uh, Sokal rather, produced a paper on socioeconomic status of obese and obesity that showed all of these things. Obesity, perceptions of body size, prejudice, bias, discrimination, stigma, all of these filtered through education, income, uh, occupation to generate socioeconomic status and then socioeconomic status then feeds obesity. Okay, so far so good, but we can do better. You can have the slides. You can have everything I'm presenting, and I'm very happy to put them on the website, so you don't need to, to write everything down. So that's okay. Uh, brings me to my hero, Pierre Bourdieu. I wanted a picture of Pierre Bourdieu swimming, but I couldn't find one on the web. Um, um, he wrote a book called Distinction, a Social Critique of Judgment of Taste. And I don't know why, I thought, well, is this quite a lot, cited quite a lot? It's been cited 33,000 times um, up until about a week ago. And I thought, well, what do you, what's the baseline you can compare this to? Well, Watson and Crick, of course. Um, so Watson and Crick has only been cited 10,000 times. So it suggests to me that they're, it's important. And uh, if you're a scientist and you haven't heard of Pierre Bourdieu, you should read Bourdieu. It's a bit outdated these days, but there are modern uh, analyses and interpretations of Bourdieu. Um, okay, the picture, the cartoon at the bottom is the good one because it tells you... Um, um, what's cool, what's not, what's not cool. Um, economic capital, rich people have it, poor people don't. Cultural capital, cool people have it, um, non-cool people don't. So, you know, think about the things that are considered to be cool. You have different ways in creating social distinction, in distinguishing yourself from other people. You know, if I sit in that bottom quadrant, which is, which is down here, this is where academics sit, We've got masses of cultural capital, but we don't earn enough to, 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 to mix with the rich people. Until the rich people want to come and talk to us because they admire our cultural capital, which happens in a place like Oxford quite a lot. So, uh, there are different ways of thinking about capital. So, I've reconstructed this idea a little bit. That we talk about social capital, economic capital, socioeconomic status, all of these things. But, you know, there are other ways. Cultural capital... This is a bit of a cartoon. There are other ways in which you can construct cultural capital. It can be the fact that I went to Oxford. I've got an Oxford degree. I went to the Karolinska. I have a Karolinska degree. Um, it can be objectified capital. Okay, I own a Rembrandt. I don't. Um, it could be embodied capital. I'm thin and spelt. Or not. Now, here's where things start to get inverted. Because if you look at African-American communities, Pacific Island communities, in many places... Um, embodied capital carrying more weight is actually capital, not carrying less weight. So thinking about these ways in which capital is formed, they become quite culturally specific. It's not the same in every place. So the psychology literature about large body size preference among African Americans doesn't sit in its capsule anymore. It comes into this larger category of, of capital formation, which I think is a, a fundamental thing. Just a couple of examples to show how other forms of capital play into this. Um, here's an example from Kuwait. So, for example, um, these are two groups, healthy weight and obese. The body mass index of the healthy group is around 18. Um, the body mass index of, of the unhealthy group, uh, of the obese group, is around 28. It's a huge difference in body mass index between these two groups. When we look at um, 
health-related quality of life score down here, there actually isn't much difference. The obese kids may be carrying a huge amount of weight, but they seem to be fine. They really don't, doesn't bother them how much weight they're carrying. They're not being stigmatized against this. It's a society where that body weight still carries capital for the parents, for the children. They're not doing anything perverse. They are simply using traditional measures of capital formation. They're not doing anything wrong. They are just behaving as they would. Everything around them has changed. And it may be that in 10 years' time, the way that they look at capital may also change, and body size perceptions may also change. But this is the sort of thing. There is a logic to it. A second example from Poland. It's a paper that I was involved in um, that looked at um, the changes in... Um, overweight and obesity um, across the transition um, uh, from communism in 1990. And the interesting picture here is down here at the bottom. That while adolescent males carried on increasing um, the, in, 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 uh, in uh, their prevalence of obesity, adolescent females didn't. What changed? A number of things changed. And, you know, among many, many, many things. But... Um, Standards of beauty from the West, the import of Western ideas of what a woman should be across the teenage years, something that became, it might have been there in small amount, but it became, the market became flooded with this. And of course, Poland has always looked to the West and hasn't seen itself as being an Eastern country, a communist country. It has seen itself as being a, a Western country. So, you know, you get fashion magazines like this one. Down at the bottom, it says in Polish, uh, fashionable jeans for every figure. But if you have a look at what every figure is, it certainly isn't every figure. It's certain kinds of figures. So there's distinction going on here. And these forms of the ideas of capital carry on changing. A few more. So capital formation, if we think in these terms, starts early. Fetal development, maternal investment in pregnancy, grandmaternal and grandparental investment um, through epigenetics, uh, parental capital, fetal and postnatal development through education, income, inheritance, social uh, position and parental capital translates into personal capital across childhood and adolescence. So just two more slides and then I'm finished. The first is um, Hemmingson's picture of psychological and emotional distress and childhood obesity causation. That it's a model that looks at insecurity through parental um, adult psychology through child problems, through families, all the way through to eating behaviours, which is which is all all, all well and good. Um, but one could reframe this in a way that considers the adaptive and evolutionary, which is what brings these things together. That both capital formation and evolutionary processes, evolutionary ecology, come together um, as something that um, uh, produces uh, obesity. So it could be reframed as developmental capital formation, predictive adaptive, the social equivalent of metabolic imprinting. Adaptation falls over when there's social change. So equivalent to environmental change or correlates of modernization that fuel negative health consequences of metabolic imprinting. And biological inheritance is structured by social environment via epigenetics. So different forms of capital could leave their own particular kind of mark. Um, that has longer-term consequences. The summary slide, obesity and childhood a product of subverted parental and grandparental investment in modern and modernizing worlds. 
It's capital information that shapes parental and grandparental investment and biological inheritance that's structured by social environments. Thank you.